So we're studying a new series this morning, and, uh, and we're going to roll into that in the next couple months here called The Unveiled Life. It feels like I've been sitting on this message for months, okay? So I'm, I'm ready to roll <coughs> this morning. I actually had to reread it to remember what I wrote down. That's kind of how it's been. But all that aside, it's great to be back. And let's just get started. The Unveiled Life, we're going to be working in 2 Corinthians from chapter 2, verse 12 to chapter 7, verse 1. And the key verse in that whole section is this one found in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And it says this, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We're going to look at that transformation process later in the series. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And we sang about that this morning. <clears throat> this verse captures not only the theme of the five chapters we're going to look at, but it actually captures the theme of the Christian life, if you think about it. Uh, that we all, <clears throat> and <clears throat> with, and the term here used is, with an unveiled face, all right? With an unveiled face are being transformed. That if a person is in Christ, what this is going to say, that veil is taken away. And the idea here is that repentance and surrender take away the need to hide or to cloak. <clears throat> Something we're familiar with. We don't have to veil anymore. And that we all then, with unveiled face, will behold the glory of the Lord. This means we, what, ascertain it, we, we comprehend it, we see it, we get it. The resurrected glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and all his beauty, glory, and power. And it's not too difficult. One time in your life you couldn't see him, the next you could. What changed? Nothing really changed. Everything is the same, yet everything's different. Why? Because you can see the Lord, right? And it just changes the entire paradigm of how you understand life. And when that happens, uh, something amazing takes place. This shift occurs, and we are being transformed. And the key phrase here is from one degree of glory to another. Transformed into the image of Christ. We, we would like to go all at once, right? Shoo, poof, yes, transform. It uh, doesn't work quite that way. We, you and me, are going to, in the end, look like Jesus. Isn't that the great hope, Right? This does not come from human knowledge or teaching or human effort. It comes from the Lord who is the Spirit, and it is something only He can do. What is our hope? That God's manifest presence would be among us in a life-transforming way and that He would make us into the image of His Son. That we would be less and less like us and more and more like Him. Notice also that that's not a straight-line process, right? It does this, this thing. But also that others would be drawn to him because of the radiance of his presence. Psalm 34 captures this in a beautiful way. <clears throat> if you look at it, it says, I sought the Lord, and he answered me. And he delivered me from all my fears. This is somebody crying out to the Lord who's stuck in a predicament. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament was the pre-resurrected Jesus Christ. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who, fears him, those who fear him, and he delivers them. 
<clears throat> this is God's dream for us, and this is our dream. This is our dream for our church. There's no greater, greater dream than that, that we would reflect Christ in such a way that other people would ask, what's going on? What, what is with you people? What, right? And we could say, we can tell you about it. His name is Jesus. We'd like you to know him. All right, that's the great hope. Let's pray this morning and then we'll, we'll roll into the message. Father, thank you for this idea of transformation. Our world copies it in the movies. It's all over the place. They recognize the power behind the idea. But Lord, they don't recognize you as the power. Lord, we seek you this morning. We are just us. But you are you. You have always been you. And you have not only transformed the universe, you transformed us. <clears throat> Lord, you found us. And so we come to you this morning walking through this idea and pray that you would bring light to it, that it would make sense, and that we would enjoy it and uh, be motivated to cooperate with you. And I give that to you in your name. Amen. All right. So in the creative team, uh, we were talking and we realized that this is possibly my last full series that I preach as the senior pastor of Northview Community Church. Have you thought about that? Wow, right? And so I was sitting there and James said, well, if that's true, what would you want to do? What, if you could do anything, what would you want to do? And I shout out right away. First, I said, 2 Corinthians. Uh, this is where I'd go. And I've been excited about this scripture for a long period of time. It's one of the sections of scripture that really uh, lit me up when I first came to Christ. And, and it's continued to do so over the years. Uh, it's a very precious section of scripture for me. And God brought it alive <coughs> excuse me, in a very amazing way. So let me take you back and tell you a story. Back in the day, when David and Susan were in the youth group, when Kirk Mitchell was in the youth group, when Peter Bond was in the youth group, way back in the dark ages, um, we always had youth group in the first service, and then in the second service, the youth group that would sit in the front rows, right? And, uh, and so I got excited. I was teaching on 2 Corinthians. I was teaching on 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I did this message for the youth group, and I was all hellfire and brimstone and lit everybody up, and we were just rocking and rolling. And then we went into the main service. And in the main service, we all sat down in the front. And Jan, unbeknownst to any of us, starts preaching out of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And we're like, oh, like what? And he goes down and he starts going down line for line what I had just done in the youth group. And the kids are going, oh, did you, did, what, what? He's going to say, oh, yes, wow, you know. And they were making kind of a ruckus. They were, they were just blown away like, this is incredible. Did you know this? I didn't know nothing. Right? Well, after service, Jan was more than perturbed. <laughs> he pulls me over and he says, Steve, you have got to get a handle on those kids. They were just like out, out of line this morning. I said, no, 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 you don't understand. They were excited about what God's doing. He said, what are you talking about? So I held up my notes. He says, oh, I know, Steve. You've always been a great note taker. I said, Jan... <laughs> Jan, those aren't my notes off of your message. Those are my notes off of Sunday school. And he goes, what? I said, you literally went line for line down the message and the kids were freaking out because they thought God had talked to you at the same time. And so it was just a crazy experience. Really had a lot of fun with it. He was much happier after that. <laughs> um, 
But then we began to work on that passage together and it became a series that Jan actually taught down at Multnomah School of the Bible and he titled it The Veiled and the Unveiled Ministry. And uh, for our purposes, we're going to call it The Unveiled Life. But these passages have left an impact on me ever since. So I personally desire to be these passages, all right? This is not just something I read. When I read this, I go, that's who I want to be. That's what I hope Jesus makes me into. Um, before we go into the actual passages, let's do some background on the book because it plays a really important uh, part as to the setup and why Paul wrote the book. So if you, uh, let's just start with when it's written. If you take a look here up on the screen, uh, you find that the book of James was written in the mid-40s. Then you have First and, Th- First and Second Thessalonians, so 50-51, they were both written right there. Then you have Galatians, written in 55 A.D. Then you have 1 Corinthians 55 A.D., 2 Corinthians 56 A.D., and then Romans 57 A.D. Right? So they just go boom, 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 boom uh, that way. So 1 and 2 Corinthians are some of the earliest epistles that Paul wrote. And let's going on here, let's just get the context. So here's a map of the Mediterranean uh, area. And you can see it here. And on the map there, you can, see, you can see Corinth, right? And you can see Athens, and you can see Ephesus. So we're talking about Turkey there, what we would know as modern-day Turkey, and then Greece uh, as we know it today. And if you look, uh, take a, a more of a blow-up view on the next slide, you'll see this is a map of um, the isthmus that's called the Peloponnese. And you see there's that little neck of land right there that connects that big hunk of land to uh, mainland Greece. And that's strategically where Corinth was placed. Uh, it was placed there on that narrow isthmus, um, and it was strategic for both trade and war. And you can see why, right? It, it was also, um, so for shipping, they didn't have to go around that whole isthmus. They could cut through, and later there was a canal cut through there, so it made trade really prosperous. Uh, it was the birthplace of the games that we know as the Olympics. The modern-day Olympics came, come from there. Uh, it was incredibly pros- prosperous. I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but how many of you remember the commercials for Chrysler with Ricardo Montalban, right? And he was saying, and the seats are covered in fine Corinthian leather, right? Remember that? Yeah, that, that idea of Corinthian was the best. It was the, the best you could get. It was the greatest. Those of you who are laughing just gave your age away. And... Um, <laughs> But it, it had all the excess and immorality that goes with something like that. It was basically the Greek version of Vegas, right? If you really want to put it simple, that's, that's what it was. So Paul is on his second missionary journey. He and Barnabas have split over the issue of John Mark. Paul is now traveling with Silas, and in Lystra and Derby, uh, the disciple Timothy joins them. Let's just take a look at this again and remind ourselves how that went. So you can see here, you can look up there, there's Lister and Derby, that's where Timothy came from. Acts 16 tells us that they were not allowed by the Holy Spirit to go into Asia or Bithynia, so that would be to the north and the south. And so you can see that line, they follow that line and they track along that line, not allowed to go to the left or the right, and they end up in Troas. Now Troas is going to become really important uh, in this story in just a little bit, um, and but we'll get to that in a second. Um, from there, 
Paul has the vision of a guy over across on the other side of the water in Macedonia, which we, modern day Greece, saying, please come over here and help us. And so Paul goes across and he gets over there and that's when he winds up in Philippi. In Philippi, he heals a slave girl that's demon possessed. And as a result, the owners no longer can make a profit off her. They get really ticked at Paul. They beat him up, throw him in front of the magistrates. He's beaten with rods. He and Silas are thrown in jail. They're praying in jail and singing at midnight. An earthquake occurs. All the jail doors come open. The jailer's going to kill himself because he thinks all the prisoners have escaped. Paul says, no, no, we're all here. And then the jailer and all his family come to know Christ. And then they get kicked out of Philippi. And then they go to Thessalonica Great things start to happen there. Then another ruling mob kicks them out of Thessalonica. They go to Berea. They get to Berea. Things are going great till the mob from Thessalonica comes down to Berea, kicks them out of Berea. So you can see it's pretty dynamic, pretty pressure-packed, pretty uh, challenging circumstances. So once, once they escape Berea, Paul goes by ship. They're afraid for his life. So they, he goes by sea to Athens. So you can see Athens up there. He goes by the water route. Timothy and Silas go back up to Thessalonica. They probably weren't as well known as Paul. They make sure the church is okay. And then they come down by the land route, which is about 300 some miles. So from uh, Philippi or Thessalonica to Athens is about the same as going from here to Spokane, right? So you give you some kind of perspective of what that was like. Paul is in Athens. He sees the statue to the unknown God. He preaches that famous sermon in Athens, right? And then he ends up in Corinth. Now, Paul stays in Corinth about a year and a half. You can find that in Acts chapter 18. And in Corinth, then, he founds the Corinthian church. And then Paul travels east, goes through Crenshia there, and then winds up in Ephesus. And Paul is in Ephesus for two years. So there's just a little Bible travelogue. Okay, if you ever go to that part of the country, you can go see all that stuff, and it's pretty darn cool. All right? But from there, he becomes aware of problems that have developed in the Corinthian church. There were divisions, there was immorality, abuse of the Lord's Supper, and thus he writes 1 Corinthians. So that's the background and the text for how 1 Corinthians got written. This then begins a series of letters and visits that there are no real records of and only hints of the fact that they happen. And so if you look it up, they'll tell you what, uh, you know, what they think possibly happened. And so the events between the 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and I got this out of the Bible Expository's Dictionary. So 1st Corinthians, uh, the Corinthian church self-corrected once Paul wrote that. And, but then other problems developed. So then it says that Paul paid them a painful visit. Right? A painful visit, you find that in 2 Corinthians 2.1. Apparently he went back over, paid him a visit, kind of got on him, and then got it set back in order, and then went back to Ephesus. Paul later then is openly insulted by an anti-Pauline group who said, hey, you're not such hot britches, who made you the big sheriff in town? And so then he sends Titus across uh, to Corinth with what is known in Scripture as the severe letter. You find that in 2 Corinthians 7, 8 and 9. In the midst of this, while Paul's in Ephesus, 
the Demetrius riot takes place. Demetrius is really upset because Paul's preaching of the gospel has cut into their trade and their profits. And so he stirs the whole city into an uproar. They drag Paul in front of the magistrates. Uh, Paul barely escapes with his life. Paul leaves Ephesus, and then he goes back to Troas. There's that, that town again. In Troas, nobody knows what really happened, but it says that he suffered his affliction in Asia. Nobody knows what that really was. Nobody knows exactly what he's speaking about, but it, was, uh, it had a massive impact on him uh, mo- to the point where most Bible scholars agree that Paul is pretty beat up at this point. Uh, duh, right? And, uh, and what we would call clinically depressed, that he, he has really taken it um, hard. And it's, it says in 2 Corinthians 1.8 that they despaired even of life. They weren't even sure they would make it out of this, whatever it was. And it was so bad that despite having a wide open door for ministry, uh, Paul can't find Titus and dismay leaves Troas and, and again goes across to Macedonia. You don't often think of the Apostle Paul blowing a, a missions opportunity, but in this case he did. He just couldn't get things put together, and so he heads back over across the other side. When he gets to the other side, um, Titus arrives with his good report, and you'll find that in Corinthians as well, and Paul continues to evangelize probably in Illyricum, and then Paul, on hearing fresh problems, then writes this book, 2 Corinthians. So he probably wrote this book up there in Illyricum or Philippi, somewhere in that neighborhood. Then he later goes back down, ends up uh, in Corinth, spends three months in Corinth, and writes a little book called the Book of Romans. You know what's mind-blowing about that is not that he wrote the book. What's mind-blowing, he wrote Romans in less than three months. Is that amazing or what? Like, you know, mind-blown. And then he ends up uh, back in Ephesus, and then he goes to Jerusalem where we pick up most of the story and we know about his trip back to Jerusalem. So there's really dynamic stuff going on here. Like it wasn't just sitting there. There were all kinds of stuff going back and forth. Why is all of this significant? Why did I take the time to tell you all that? Because this tells us that what we're about to cover in this series was written in hard times. It was written for people who were going through hard times, from someone who had gone through hard times. In other words, it wasn't the mountaintop Paul here that we're talking about. This is Paul in the valley. This is Paul when he's not doing very well himself. And Paul knew what it was to suffer. He's hurting here, yet he's still coaching. Uh, There's an old saying about pastors, and it goes something like this. It says, don't trust the preacher who doesn't have a slight limp and a smell of smoke on him. And what they mean by that is, in other words, don't trust the preacher who hasn't been through some battles. This is Paul's best stuff, and it didn't come to him easy. It came to him when he was in a battle. He's limping, and he has the smell of smoke on him. And the stuff he's going to share is galvanizing. I I find it that way. It will parallel and underline everything uh, that James covered in his Easter series on John 14 to 17. By the way, wasn't that that God with us there? Was that a great series or what? That was fantastic. Thanks for that, James. Okay, Uh, so 2 Corinthians, let's start out. Let's take a look now with the background. 
it starts out with one of the all-time great pictures of the heart of God. If you've ever had a problem connecting to the heart of God, here's a beautiful picture for you. It says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Uh, This is a passage often used at funerals. I've used it many times myself. Why? Because it brings tremendous comfort to those who are in great pain and need mercy and comfort and to know that God is there for them. God is a good father. This passage says, comes alongside us when we're hurting. He puts an arm around us and he comforts us. This is not theory. Paul's saying this is exactly the way he was comforted by God in his affliction in Asia, right? He can now comfort others by the comfort he himself had received from God. And I just want to say this morning, if you're hurting or if you're in pain, physical or emotional, if you're in affliction, then we would point you to the same Father heart of God who revealed himself through life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus, and now ministers that comfort through the presence and the ministry of his Holy Spirit. It's a ministry of comfort, and it's a ministry of mercy. And it's available today if you come under his protection and into his salvation. And I don't want to just rush through that. I know a lot of us have had battles. We had a number of deaths this last week. Uh, In our prayer time, there were four families whose parents died just this week, okay? So let's just stop for a minute and pray. Would you join me? Father, I don't know who I'm speaking to, uh, but you do, and you know the hurting heart. You know the crush. You know the suffocating feeling of barely being able to breathe, not being able to walk through life. And Lord, this morning, we want to stop and just ask that your heart, your Father heart, would come alongside those who are in that circumstance and would be next to them. That your grace would ooze from you, that your comfort would feel like a hug, that they would sense you uh, just being right alongside of them. Lord, that's something we can't do, but you can do it. May they feel blessed this morning just for that, just for coming, that knowing you care for those, you care for a smoldering wick, you care for a bruised reed, and you will not quench them or snuff them out. Lord, we give that grace to you in your name. Amen. All right, be blessed in that, all right? All right. There's a lot more to chapter 1 and chapter 2, but for our purposes this morning, we're going to jump to chapter 2, verse 12. So if you've got your Bibles, open up. If you've got your phone, turn it on. And let's read. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. So here we come. We find Paul in Troas again. He says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, this was the first time, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my my brother Titus there. And so I took leave of them and I went to Macedonia. You can tell from Paul's own words he's out of sync, right? My spirit, he says, was not at rest. What does that translate to? 
That's very biblical. My, my spirit doth not resteth, right? What does that translate to? What's the modern word we'd put to that? Anxiety. You recognize that? Paul's going, man, I am freaked out. I am stressed. I have anxiety. There's an open door for the gospel, and Paul is so out of sorts with his circumstance and his concern for the Corinthian church that he leaves. He can't even get his head wrapped around it. Now, before we start jumping all over Paul and start calling him a lightweight, let's just review a little bit who's saying this. And let's remind ourselves of what he's been through. Here's his list in 2 Corinthians later in the book, chapter 11. It says this, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews 40 lashes less one. For you mathematical people out there, that's 195 times he received the lash of the whip. Okay, I think I'd make it about three. I don't know about you. 195 times. Think about that. His back had to look like a piece of chewed up leather. Three times I was beaten with rods. We know that once that was in Philippi. Once I was stoned. That's in Laodicea. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, <coughs> danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, that would be the Corinthian church he's writing about, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger, thirst, often without food, and in cold and exposure. Right? And on top of this, and alongside this, he says this. He says, And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I'm not indignant? Paul's watching the enemies come in and attack the church, and he is just upset. He's beside himself that they are getting hammered from people whose motives are crooked. Paul's under tremendous pressure, yet in the midst of it, he writes some of the most hopeful and amazing illustrations that can be found in Scripture. In 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, it says this, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. In the midst of this catastrophe, he's talking about Christ leading us in a triumphal position, procession. There's two pictures of this. Either we are the beaten up one, captured one, and we're being led by the world to martyrdom and death, but Christ is still triumphant. Or the church is being led by Christ to glory. And either one of those pictures, either paradigm, the church is being squeezed. <laughs> What comes out of you when you get squeezed? Right? That's the, the question on the table this morning. Paul says that when we get squeezed in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him, the knowledge of Jesus everywhere. In other words, when we get squeezed, Jesus should come out. Paul says that when we share the gospel, we spread what is known as the fragrance of Christ. When we walk with God, when we're obedient, we spread the fragrance of Christ. In other words, it's something in our spirit. It's something that God gives us. It's his power. You say, how is God's power uh, in my life? It's through the fragrance of your spirit, which is why it's so important to manage the internal stuff. 
right? Now, there's some great fragrances of life. Let's talk about fragrances for a second, right? There's some great fragrances of life, like baking bread in a kitchen, right? I remember walking into my grandmother's house. I can smell it right now. Just grandma would be bread. Wow, fresh churned butter. Oh my gosh, that was just killer. Flowers bursting out in spring right now, right? Just everywhere in the Northwest. It's fabulous. Uh, barbecues during summer, right? I don't know about you, but in my neighborhood, I walk down and you can smell different barbecues going and going, man, somebody knows how to cook. <laughs> this is great stuff. Uh, leaves in the fall, right? You ever that smell? You're walking through the woods or stuff. Just great. Uh, my all-time favorite, campfire with bacon, eggs, and coffee brewing, right? Which is weird because I don't even drink coffee, right? But I love that smell. It's just like, man, when you're out camping, that is just to beat the band, right? Some of you are thinking, wow, we got to go camping right now, right? It's just, there's also some not so pleasant fragrances in life. Uh, driving through the Snohomish Valley when the manure is being spread, right? Rotten garbage, dead fish, skunks. There are many others, but I don't think I have to elaborate or get too graphic to get the idea across, right? In other words, there's some really good fragrances and there's some really bad fragrances. But here's what's fascinating. Paul says that the fragrance of Christ is both. Look at what he says in in verses 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death And to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And who is sufficient for that kind of thing? I'm adding a little Steveism in there, but right? Who's capable for that kind of thing? Paul says that we are the aroma of Christ, both to those who are being saved and those who are perishing. In other words, both groups run into the same fragrance. The fragrance itself doesn't change at all. What changes is the reaction to the fragrance, okay? That's what's interesting. To one group, it's the scent of heaven. To another group, it's the scent or smell of death. Um, This is easy to understand. All of us like certain foods, right? Uh, For example, I disdain pickles, okay? And you say, why do you disdain pickles? Because I grew up having to pick pickles as a kid in 90 degree heat in humid Wisconsin and that stuff got in your gloves, it got in your clothes and just like, blah, okay? So I, I am not a pickle fan. Um, I don't like them. On the other hand, I love olives. Black olives, green olives, stuffed olives, I will eat them out of the car, can or jar, just open them up and start eating them, right? Absolutely fabulous, okay? My wife, Pam, does not like olives, and if I say to her, why don't you like eating olives? Of course, this all goes along with bravado and incredulity that anybody couldn't possibly like olives. And if you were cool and hip like me, you would join me in eating olives. Well, she, she comes back quite simply and says, well, what if I made you eat pickles? Excellent counterpoint. Right? In other words, olives to her are like pickles to me. Right? But in this case, What Paul is saying is something different than that. What he's saying is, it's not olives or pickles. It's the exact same fragrance. We're not talking about food here. We're talking about eternal salvation. To some people, wow, yum. Some people, gay, chuck. Okay? And it's the same thing. It's just the response off of it. 
We just saw this for Easter. Uh, for many of us, for Easter, us, Easter is Christ rising from the dead. It's the good news of the gospel. We're saved with joy with it. It's cause for great celebration and hope. Wow, right? We just go over the top with it. For others, it's an abhorrent, disgusting display of naivete and foolishness that should have been taken down and canceled centuries ago. How in the world is this stupid, crippled thing, the church, still going? When, when science has discredited it for a thousand years. What, what in the world is keeping that going? It just drives them crazy. Okay? But the biblical message is both for those who believe and for those who don't. The offer in Scripture is to taste. Interesting, isn't it? Taste and see that the Lord is good, Psalm 34. We are lured to him by the fragrance of Christ. What's the fragrance of Christ? Well, the fragrance of Christ is his sacrificial love for us. James did such a great job of laying this out in his God With Us series. There is something astonishingly compelling of someone who loves us in a sacrificial way. Why do we get mushy on Mother's Day? Because as guys, we finally get old enough to realize, man, our mom really sacrificed a lot, and I owe her my left arm and various other body parts out of gratefulness because, well, I just realized what she did. Yeah, I look back down, how did my mom handle eight kids? I have no idea. The woman is a genius and a saint, right? That's kind of sacrificial love. Uh, James said this so eloquently, he said, the greatest form of love is sacrificial. Remember when he said that? Remember that part? That just galvanized me and said, it's not emotional, it's not sexual, it's not intellectual, it's sacrificial. Jesus' death on the cross because he loves you is stunning, it's attractive, it's compelling. Why? Because if somebody loves me like that, I'm instantly motivated to love them back because I recognize they don't have a hook in it. They're not getting something out of it. They're not doing it for some cause or something. There's, Jesus was standing on the cross and said, look, I will not use my power against you. You can trust me. After what we did to him, stunning, absolutely stunning. What are the two great commandments, you remember? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is what? Love your neighbor as yourself. This is so foundational. What's the fragrance? Well, loving the Lord and loving one another is the fragrance. To love others as Christ. Anybody in that process learning how to do that? Right? Yeah, that's the fragrance. The dream here is that we do such a good job loving each other that when people walk in, they go, what's going on in this place? There's something about that place. I sense the love of God in here. That's what, when we pray for his manifest presence, that's what we're praying for. But it means we all have to engage in it, right? That's not a sit back in the seat thing, that's a get up and engage thing, right? That's talking to people and loving on people and making people feel welcome and asking Jesus to be with us in his manifest presence. When we do that well, Paul says the aroma of Christ is spread everywhere. It just, it just leaks out. It just goes in all kinds of different directions. And that's our goal, that his manifest presence would be among us because we've obeyed him well in this area. In closing, Paul says this, well, who's sufficient 
for these things? And the answer is nobody. (laughs) None of us are. I have a piece of paper on my desk that says this, Oh Lord, one thing that amazes me, and that is uh, my almost total deficiency in letting you manifest yourself and your beauty in my outward life. Let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon me this day. Now, if we leave it there, that's kind of depressing. But the opposite side of the coin in answering the question is also true. Who's sufficient for these things? Well, nobody is, not on our own merits. But the other side of the coin is everybody is on the merits of Jesus, right? Everybody's sufficient. Why? Because Jesus makes us sufficient for it. We are the finished work of Christ. And Paul's going to tell us later in the letter that our sufficiency isn't in ourselves, but in Christ, who is in us, our hope of glory. It's one of the greatest phrases in the Bible. Look at verses 15 and 16 again. Now put that in this context. For we are the aroma of Christ to God, among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, and another a fragrance from life to life, Who is sufficient for these things? What Paul is saying is that the reality of all of this is mind-blowing. And it is. Okay? It really is. It was then, it is now. And the challenge of life is to be that fragrance regardless of how people react to it. Paul is going to take us farther into this ministry. And uh, we'll explore some more. If you want to see where this goes, come back next week. All right? Join me in prayer. Father in heaven, we've been talking about being an aroma, a fragrance. And Lord, we seek you for that. We live in a world that is hungry to find a way to you and truth and don't know how to do it. It's laced with so many lies and and so many... Lord, as a church, we've just failed in so many ways that they've kind of written that off. But they need to run into you. And so we, we pray that you would allow us to be fragrant in Mill Creek. That as we walk through our stores, as we walk through our neighborhood, as we meet with people in different whether it's soccer teams or basketball things or track or whatever it is, that uh, people would pick up on this fragrance, Lord. And we seek you that as we go through these messages, that you will speak to us personally. We will hear your voice. And we'll be given marching orders that are unique and specific for all of us in the room. May we be your fragrance. What an incredible privilege. We ask this in your name. Amen.